Welcome to Interchain FM, where we dive into the frontier of the blockchain space. We're now in the third generation of blockchain tech, where a burgeoning multi-chain ecosystem is about to explode into what we call the decentralized web. Where Ethereum is to the mainframe computing era of the internet, Cosmos is to the PC era. If you're seeking alpha in the Cosmos ecosystem, look no further. This is the destination for your exponential learning experience. Interchain FM is where you can get the download on all of the high signal projects, building bridges to one another, and how you can participate in the future of the internet. The center of gravity for the industry is, is shifting. I think that missionary, I, you know, I view myself as a pragmatist, and but I think that the missionaries are the ones that, that push the frontier forward. And, um, you know, they're, they're what's needed. And so I was talking about the people who I interviewed in the book. And I interviewed a lot of pragmatists too, but, you know, there were some people who um, really, I think the stories are really shine through. And so you asked me like what I'm most proud of. And I said, if anything, it's, if I was able to convey those stories and to, you know, to tell them authentically, then, then that's something I'm proud of for sure. You're listening to In a Train FM, the Cosmos radio station, and I'm here with Alex Tapscott. He's an early investor in Cosmos and now an author of a book called Web3, Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you again. You're the first person on the show who's ever written a book, so that's pretty exciting. And I've written a couple. <laughs> this one's not my first. <laughs> right. Can you tell me about that? Is is this your primary thing? I guess you could say that I wear many hats. Um, it's not a hobby, but it's not my full-time thing. Um, so it's somewhere in between. So yeah, like I, I got my start in this industry back in 2015, 16, um, before, um, you know, the word Web3 had really entered the vernacular um, and it become commonplace. The the real the only game in town uh, was, you know, Bitcoin. And I guess Ethereum was launching during that period of time as well. And that was also when I first learned about Cosmos. But basically, like I kind of went down the, the rabbit hole in crypto, I think like a lot of people did. and became pretty convinced that, you know, the asset class was important and, and revolutionary, but that the underlying technology could change the world, basically. And so I did what any rational person would do. I quit a good job to write a book, having never written <laughs> a book, with no idea what was going to happen afterwards. I just like took a, um, a shot at luck. And uh, it worked out. Now, I got very fortunate in my choice of co-author. The first book that I, I wrote with my uh, dad, Blockchain Revolution, um, came out right at the perfect time, right as people were trying to understand this stuff, and there was no real book in the market. So it's been pretty influential. It's been translated into, I think, 19 languages. and has sold over a half a million copies worldwide, and it's allowed me to do lots of other stuff. So to invest in early stage projects, you know, pre-launch or, or to advise, um, you know, companies in their early stage or to invest um, on behalf of others. You know, I've raised money before and put that to work both in the venture world, but also in more traditional asset classes, including public equities. Um, and I continue to write. I continue to be very involved in trying to sort of track the progress of this industry. And I, I just am very interested in it because you know, I, I'm trying to be a chronicler of Web3, but also to give people um, some tools that they can use to understand this stuff a little bit better, right? Um, it's not, the books that I write and the work that I do is not descriptive um, in the sense that it's not meant to, you know, talk about hot projects or, you know, industry gossip. Um, it's meant to sort of highlight enduring ideas and themes that I think are going to change the world. And if you care about the future and want to play a role in shaping it, I think you got to be aware of what's happening in Web3. 
that was the sense that I got from reading the reading parts of the book, which is it's it's it is a chronicle of a lot of the themes that have unfolded over the last five or so years, and it captures the spirit of what we're doing. Well, I'm glad you think so, because um, that was certainly part of the aim. Your original co-author of uh, the first book, your your father, D- Don Tapscott, yeah. he's is he like has he written books in the past before? Yeah. Yeah, he <laughs> is that I, is that kind of why you explored that direction? Well, it's interesting, you know. I said I got lucky in my choice of co-author and then I didn't really, you know, explain what I meant by that. But yeah, so my my dad is someone who's written books about the impact of emerging technology on business since the 1980s and has written several uh pretty influential books that went on to be bestsellers. Books like uh The Digital Economy, Paradigm Shift, Wikonomics. And so he is someone who was sort of looking at Bitcoin at the time and wondering if this technology was something that was one of these new technologies, one of these things that was going to change the world. And I was looking at it slightly differently because prior to that, I'd been working in um, investment banking for like seven years. I worked wow. in, specifically in capital markets. I was on a trading desk and um, you know, one of my traders was talking about this new asset that he'd heard about you know, in a chat group. And so we started ch- chatting about Bitcoin. My initial approach was, how do I make money on this? But pretty soon after, I realized that there was something kind of more interesting that was happening. And so I arrived at that conclusion um, around the same time that Don did. And so we figured, well, look, you've written a bunch of books about business and technology. You're a person who spent a decade almost in capital markets and financial services. Let's collaborate on a book and see if we can explore these ideas in a more deep level. And so that was sort of the genesis for that one. But I never thought that I was going to be an author. You know, I, I had a whole career before getting into this stuff. And I still don't really think of myself. I mean, I'm, I'm an author, like, factually, like I have written a book. But I don't think of myself as a professional writer, right? Like, there are people who write for a living, um, who are far greater writers than I am. And, um, you know, that, that's what they do. You know, my interest is not in Web3 as sort of like an anthropological subject. Like, I'll, th- this one will be about Web3, but the next one will be about, you know, whatever, uh, climate change. My, my interest is in the technology. And, and the, the work for the book is based on a lot of different things. One, it's based on over 50 interviews with people who are building stuff. It's based on the research from our uh, institute where we've conducted over 150 projects on blockchain use cases for the for the enterprise. And it's based on my own wide sort of personal experience in, the, in this industry as an investor, an advisor, um, you know, as someone who has never been a founder, but has always been close to founders and tried to be helpful to them. And so all of that taken together, I think, um, gives me a, you know, a unique perspective. And also the fact that I've been writing on it kind of nonstop for seven years uh, means that I think, I think I have the ability to uh, explain important complex ideas in ways that people can understand without losing any of the essence. You know, Einstein once said that um, things uh, should be explained as simply as possible, but not any more simple than that, basically. Um, meaning like, don't don't dumb it down. Like, don't try to lose the essence. And it's tricky with a topic like this because there's a lot of ins and outs to it. But I hope that, that I'm able to do that. Can you explain the process between writing to publishing? About two years ago, I felt this desire to write a new book. Um, and that's not a desire that I'm overcome with often. <laughs> so this was a very sort of different feeling. 
And it, it came about mostly because the period in time that, that I started to think about this was we would had DeFi summer, um, we'd come out of the last sort of cycle. There was all these new ways in which people were exploring this technology in applications, but also, you know, in enterprises, culture, government, so forth. But there was also a lot of mis- misinformation and kind of confusion. And, you know, the, they say the future is bright, but it's not always clear. And I felt like there was a lot of mud on the windshield. You know, we're trying to drive down the road and figure this out, but it's hard to see two feet in front of you. So I figured I was going to take a shot at writing a book that would explain the the reasons why Web3 matter and why people should care. And the book was designed to be something that would be widely read. So read by uh, pioneers in this industry who I think would find um, a lot of new and interesting kind of insights, but also by people who are starting from zero. So, you know, people in government, journalists, business leaders, other entrepreneurs, students, um, you, you name it. It was meant for anybody who who cared about the future and you know, wanted to play a role in shaping it. Um, and so I kind of set out on that basis. So the process is that I wrote a proposal, which my literary agents, um, Westnef, took to a bunch of different publishers. And we received uh, some interest from several publishers. And HarperCollins was the one who was the most excited and, uh, frankly, offered the best terms. And so I signed a deal with them to write a book and spent 18 months working on that project. So that was May of 2021, um, or sorry, May of 2022, my mistake. And, uh, you know, finished writing up the book kind of like July of 2023. So the better part of 14 months of the actual writing, and then prior to that proposal process and the research and everything that went into it. Yeah, so almost, you know, from from where I am today to where I started, it's about two years. That's actually shorter than what I expected. listening to others authors talking about that whole process but at the same time there were some that decided to independently publish so that that might be a different path well i mean let me independently publish you can either take no no time at all (laughs) like a lot of people will will write a book and put it on the kindle store right as if it's like a youtube video and so in that sense like you could help you could write a book and you know a week and put it on the internet and then a lot of other people like because they don't have a deal they don't have um, like a publisher that's holding them accountable. They'll take like years and years and years and years and years while they work on their book. Like for me, because I had an I had a, um, a contract with a top three English language publisher, I had deliverables and deadlines. You know, if I didn't get a book draft to them by a certain date, I was in violation of my contract. <laughs> so that puts that puts a fire under you uh, to you know make sure you you get you get your materials in on time. It's kind of like homework, actually. Why would an author want to subject themselves to that and agree to terms where they share, like, imagine 70-30 split or something? Or I think it's even less than that, right, for for an author? Um, Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, a book is a billboard for residual, um, or a a book is a billboard for ancillary rights, (laughs) as a a wise person once told me. I mean, look, like, I, would I would I um, would it be better if authors made more? Sure, guess. But like most most book author business book authors, um, book writing is not their primary business, right? Like they're they're looking for um, you know opportunities to use the experience of writing a book to create value in other ways, right? Um, and so there are lots of other ways that that they do that. Um, I would say that I, I worked with Harper Collins because I thought the team there was terrific. You know, we spoke to them and uh, the team, the editor. 
um, who ultimately, you know, signed me to, to write the book. Um, it's a brilliant individual who provided great insight that helped me to write a better book. And so that counts for a lot too. <laughs> you know, okay. on your own, who knows what you're going to come up with when you're being asked hard questions and, you know, um, uh, provoked with new ideas. I think the end product is, is a better product. Hey, Cosmonaut. Want to survive and thrive through this bear market? The best way to do it is to stake your coins risk-free. If you hold Atom, Osmo, Canto, or Celestia's TIA, you could compound your tokens risk-free by staking with Interchain FM. Your delegation supports the Cosmos radio station so we can keep bringing you the alpha year after year. Now, back to the show. A publisher is simultaneously an editor and also almost like an advisor and a sounding board while yeah. also doing distribution? Yeah. I don't want to overstate it. Um, like they, they will provide advice and they will do edits of the book, many edits. Um, but in the end, like it's on the author to produce the original work. And then in terms of distribution, I mean, I feel like this is a podcast about how the legacy publishing industry works versus like how Web3 works, which is really funny. But yes, if if your listeners are still listening to this conversation about book publishing, um, <laughs> basically, they are also sales and distribution as well. And so they help you um, with, you know, PR and they get the book into bookstores and they get the book on, you know, uh, platforms and they make introductions and so on and so forth. And then another really important thing that uh, people might actually find interesting is that they also sell the foreign language rights. And for a topic like Web3, that's extremely important because it's a global industry, right? Like they say technology makes the world flatter by creating opportunities for people where they didn't exist before. Well, I think if that's true, like I think Web3 is going to be a steamroller. And I think Web3 is emerging at a time when, when technology tools and talents and capital are more distributed than ever before. And so my point is that there's a huge global audience for this book. Um, like with Blockchain Revolution, we we sold more copies outside of the US than inside the US, way more um, in Korean, Japanese, Chinese, and so forth. And I'm hopeful that the same will be true for this book. And so, so far we have um, uh, six translation deals in foreign languages. So um, Korean, simplified Chinese, uh, Brazilian, Portuguese, Turkish, Thai, I think Spanish, there may be one other, but so I think it's like, yeah, six or seven that we're at right now. Um, and I fully expect that, you know, the book will do as well, if not better outside of the, the English language markets than, than inside of it, because that's really just a reflection of the industry itself. Like if you look at the chain analysis ranking into the, for the last, like from last month, which, which is for the year, um, eight of the 10 countries in their top 10 ranking were in the global south. And so um, that's something the publisher does too, is make sure you get into those markets. Based on some stories I've heard from people who went to Token 2049, it seems like the Asian region, like especially in Singapore and Hong Kong, are really picking up where the US is putting down, or it's kind of I like it, right? exodus to there. The center of gravity for the industry is is shifting from North America to, to Asia, East Asia. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, as an American, that that saddens me, but does not surprise me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. based on the you know the regulations that we're we're trying to or not we, but you know the SEC is trying to impose. But let's get into the book. Actually, I don't think I saw this in it. There was no talk about food coins. What do you think that someone with 
no context in the industry, just trying to get some context would think about that phenomenon and the underlying culture of Web3. I honestly have no idea. <laughs> I mean, like the like the in the introduction uh, to the book, I talk about how the book is trying to bridge the gap in the archipelago of knowledge. So I'm not trying to like give a survey of every single innovation and every single use case for tokens. Um, what I'm what I was trying to do is just help people knit together all these different things that they've heard about and try and put it into a more cohesive kind of package, right? And so my discussion around tokens for the book is a, is basically that, you know, tokens are a new primitive um, in the same way that, you know, say a website is a new primitive and that what they can do is allow you to program value into a digital good. So in the same way that you can use a website to program information, you know, and a website can represent anything of information, a token can represent anything of value. So a token can be, you know, something that derives its value from social consensus, meme, meme value, like a dog coin, or it can be something that, you know, holds a real world asset, or it can be, you know, shared a new kind of organization like a DAO, um, you know, a, a, a voting token that a governance token that gives you an economic stake in some new network. Like it could be anything that you want it to be. And I think that's something that I think is really useful for people because like, if you start with, here's one use case for a token, it's like, okay, cool. Um, is that the only thing or like what, what are the other ones versus if you start with the, with the premise that a token is a, is a container for value, like a shipping container, it can contain anything. Um, and we can use it to program any asset in the, in the economy and we can, we can program that asset with intelligence. Um, then I think you break through that log jam a little bit of people getting too preoccupied with like the crypto component of this. What part of the book are you most proud of chronically? I would honestly say I'm, I'm most I wouldn't say I'm proud of any part of it per se, but I'd say the thing that gave me the most joy and which I hope is well reflected in the book uh, were the stories that people told me. So for the book, I did over 50 interviews with founders, venture capitalists, government people, um, those people leading the big lobbying organizations, creators and artists, musicians and so forth. And each of those stories to me was a reminder of just how brilliant and dedicated people are in this industry. You know, they say, if you're the smartest person in the room, go find yourself a new room. Well, to, to me, I've never had to find a new room because it seems like every room I go into in this business is, is full of brilliant people. Now, it doesn't mean that they're all super practical <laughs> individuals. Um, I think that Web3 has uh, three kinds of individuals. You know, it has missionaries, mercenaries, and pragmatists. And I view myself as a pragmatist. And I think a lot of missionaries roll their eyes a little bit, um, you know, because I, I talk to big companies and, um, you know, I talk about making trade-offs to scale this technology. And I think a lot of missionaries view that as sort of uh, trading away the, the underlying, um, you know, ideology. But I think ultimately um, you need missionaries to push any new frontier. So I'm all for people who are dedicated to this space. Um, but I think we also need different kinds of voices. Uh, in terms of the, the voices that I, that I try to reflect in the book. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was, I, I, uh, I met some amazing people. You know, I met a 10-year-old autistic boy named Sevi who lives in the Philippines who does art as part of his autism therapy and is able to pay for it by selling some of his art as NFTs, for example. It's not like he set out to do that. Uh, he, they, his mom and, and he learned about it accidentally. Uh, but that's something that's changed his life profoundly. You know, um, they've made $16,000 in two years selling NFTs, largely to like friends and family and some collectors in the Web3 space, but 
still it's something that that has changed his world profoundly so just being able to track the the cultural and social impact of this technology um, I think is something that that I hope I did very well and if I did then I, then I'm proud of it for sure how did you decide who to talk to for the bulk of the content of this book if I talked to 50 people I would say 30 of them were people who were on my list just people I knew I wanted to talk to because they're people who I know personally or I followed on Twitter or who I know are doing really important things and like I was trying to get to them. I would say that there were probably a dozen people who I wish I had talked to, but I couldn't for scheduling reasons or, you know, uh, because we were just not able to sort it out. Um, but I would say that 20 of them came about from how from other conversations I had with people in the research who said, you know, you should talk to you, you should talk to this person. Like I got, I got connected with um, uh, this boy, Sevi, this 10-year-old autistic uh, boy who um, sells his art as NFTs. Uh, because I was talking to people in the Filipino video gaming community who said, you know, there's another story locally that you might want to um, learn a little bit more about. Um, and that to me was was one of the most revealing examples. I mean, this is a, you know, a boy who as part of his therapy uh, does art and music and other things. And his parents had to make a tough choice, which is they could only afford one thing. And so they chose or he chose rather to continue with his art, art therapy. And he started to, you know, paint more and his parents were sharing his, his paintings online and people were asking to buy them. But he didn't want to sell his work because they were things that he cherished and were close to him. And around this time, his, his mom had sort of connected to someone in the Web3 community there who had told her about NFTs. And um, she tried it out. She like minted one of Se Sebi's works and put it on OpenSea. And much to her shock, I think, it sold. Not for a lot of money, like, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars or something. And um, it was, you know, there were friends and family and there are people in the local Web3 community that saw this as an, a neat opportunity to support a, you know, a young creator. Uh, but also, Sebi tapped into a global market. Like there were create, there were um, collectors and fans in places like Chicago and New York. Uh, and at one point, he was actually invited to NFT New York, where his work was displayed on Times Square on a huge billboard. And so, like, as a result of all of this, they made, they made some money on the art, like I think 16... Fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars, which is like, you know, not nothing. But from a from their perspective, um, that's enough to fund his treatment, right? For uh, for years, and it's more than the average Filipino family makes an entire year. So, like to me, that's what helped to put the impact of Web three in stark relief to show the to really show the social and cultural impact that this technology could have. That you know, a ten year old boy uh, who's got a talent for painting can connect to a global audience can retain the originals, but can sell a digital version of his work to a collector, I think is really extraordinary. Now, that doesn't mean every kid who picks up a pen and, and a crayon and starts scribbling is going to become some like commercial artist. Um, the, the story itself is not replicable, but the toolkit is. Like the things that the, the, the tools that he used to, to reach that global audience are things that any creator has the ability to use if they so choose. And to me, that's really inspiring. Well, it's the same thing as as what Bitcoin provided, right? It's just like the general idea of democratizing things that were previously inaccessible to people in countries where a lot of things were inaccessible. Exactly. Bingo. You nailed mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And that's a hopeful story for humanity, just especially as we're entering into this dawn of, uh, I don't know, more censorship and more coercion. I think you told a really inspiring story. And if there are more stories like that, then that'd be amazing. 
Well, there's another great story, which is that, you know, there's a great Canadian Nigerian company called Orope that uh, helps companies that operate in Africa get money back to the US. And they do that using stable coins. So it's cheaper to move money between places like Canada and the United States than it is between places like Ghana and Nigeria or Nigeria and the US. There's just the, the payment rails are very underdeveloped. But you can use a stable coin as a, as a way to basically on-ramp a local currency and then convert it into dollars. And so this company, Corpay, has like 100 different um, you know, large corporations that are using its services without even knowing that the underlying technology is a crypto asset. To me, that's interesting. But what's more interesting about it is that um, all of the employees of Corpay who are based in Nigeria, if they had the option, would take their compensation entirely in USDC or USDT rather than take their uh, compensation in the local currency. And that's because the USDC is a better store of value and it has more utility. It's more useful. You know, having dollars is just more useful. And that's a problem that a lot of uh, central banks and other government uh, entities are dealing with. I was on a panel in Saudi Arabia two years ago, a year and a half ago. And on the panel was me, Nouriel Roubini, uh, who they call Dr. Doom, and uh, the, the then governor of the bank, of Pakistan. And uh, Mr. Rabini and I got into a bit of an argument on stage, um, which I think I won, but they refused to release the tapes, maybe because they don't want to embarrass him. But anyway, um, I also got in a conversation with the governor of the Bank of Pakistan. And at the time, he was talking about uh, them wanting to ban digital assets. And he said the reason that he was so worried was because of dollarization. The idea that the locals would substitute out a local currency for stable coins or Bitcoin or some other asset. Like he wasn't particularly well educated in this area, but he just was like, look, this is dollarization all over again, but now you're telling me they can do it more, more easily. So this is something that I track in the last, second to last chapter of the book, um, which deals with sort of the societal and social and like sort of like the civilization impact of this technology, which is that to your point, Yes, it's great that we have a toolkit that empowers individuals, that makes it harder, that, that gives them ownership over their digital self and ownership over their assets, that makes it easier for them to move and store value, to remain private, um, to express their rights online. Like Those are all really good things. There's another side to this where in the process, um, through dollarization in particular, local governments become destabilized because they've lost control over their money supply and the ability to control interest rates. And as a result, we see, you know, uh, further instability in the world. And so you have to wrestle with that, that duality, which is that this is good for the individual, but it might be bad for the state. And, you know, you might say that while well, the state is evil or whatever, I mean, I don't hold that view, but I do think that, um, you know, if we can re we can change the balance. That's good. But, um, if it ends with the collapse of governments, that's bad. <laughs> so I, I think that we have to figure out, um, like, I, I don't I don't know what the solution is, and I'm certainly not predicting an outcome here, but I think that you can extrapolate from current trends how in the future we might see start to see the impact on, on central banks and on governments. And, you know, I live in Canada where we've got our own currency. We issue debt in our own currency, which is not common. Most countries do not issue debt in their own currency. Uh, they issue debt in U.S. dollars because we're like a mature developed nation with a you know a robust economy or whatever. But half of like all transaction volume um, with it, within businesses and um, the majority of it from Canada to the world is all in U.S. dollars. So we're already a very dollarized economy as it is. 
Um, and so I just, I wonder, you know, what we think we won't be impacted by this, but you got to wonder if, if the, the, pro the process of the expansion of, of digital assets, whether it's, you know, Bitcoin or, or other things will cause unintended consequences like that. I think it's one of the big ironies actually of, of, uh, crypto that a technology which was designed for Bitcoin, right? Like a way to enable people to move money peer to peer, uh, a, a way to make a protests as well to the banks and maybe to governments. You know, we know that from what was written into the original Bitcoin block um, has actually helped to um, kind of commercialize the US dollar even more or, or put another way, like Web3's first killer app is the US dollar, which is like very hilarious to me because the whole nature of the technology was meant to decentralize power. But what it actually does is it hyper accelerates things that people already want to use. And what everybody really wants is a way to move and store dollars, right? So I just think like, this is all in the book. And I would encourage people to check it out. The book, yeah, I think it's, it's fair to say that I try to chronicle some important stories, but I'm also trying to like give people uh, a toolkit, um, a field guide for the internet's next frontier. And, and I hope that it's something that that they find useful as well. As a pragmatist, what would you say your motivations for working in this industry are? Because the, the the missionary and the mercenary motivations are clear, but pragmatists are not so much. Well, I would say that I, I have a missionary zeal, but I'm trying to get at it with pragmatic solutions. So like, what's the goal here? Like the goal is let's make it so that um, billions of people are benefiting from Web3. What does that mean? Well, it means that you know, they have a way to move and store value peer to peer. If they're um, in virtual worlds or playing games that they, any asset they buy, they should actually own and they should have property rights. It means that, you know, if you've got a digital identity, you should be able to curate it and control it. You should have a wallet that allows you to decide who accesses your information. Um, you know, if you're somewhere in the world where you don't have access to, to banking or economic opportunity, you should be able to plug into this digital economy and earn money in other ways and uh, so on and so forth, right? So like if you're using internet services and applications and you're adding value to them, then you should be an owner and you should have to say how they run. I think all of that stuff is really important. So I, I think that I have that zeal, but I think that I'm, I, I'm all for like, how do we make it happen? Like, let's make it happen. And part of that's education. And that's why, you know, I, I do stuff like write these books. But part of it's also, you know, acknowledging that when a big like enterprise adoption of Web3 tools is a good thing, um, it's good that banks and other traditional financial services firms want to embrace tokenization using public blockchain infrastructure, just to be clear, because that's going to help to onboard more people and it's going to spread institutional knowledge. And like all of those things are positives for the industry. And I think that sometimes, um, you know, missionaries don't have the same open mindedness when it comes to uh, pitching a big tent and collaborating with others. So that's just how I would define it. For anyone who aspires to write a book of their own and is just getting started, what advice would you give them? Don't do it. <laughs> it takes Why long. that? It takes too long and the pay is bad. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Um, writing this book was one of the most fulfilling and definitely challenging things I've ever undertaken. And um, I'm really grateful for the support of lots of people. So I'd say if you're writing a book, make sure you've got a good village around you. Um, you know, they say if it takes a village to raise a child, it took me a small town to make this book a reality. And it's not just the 50 odd people that I interviewed and who helped to shape my thinking around this, because like, what do I know? Um, it's also the countless people who supported me, you know, editors, um, publicists, uh, friends, family, colleagues who, um, 
gave me ideas, supported me, you know, pushed me, challenged me, and so forth. So I think you know, if you're going to do the, do this, um, make sure you've got the a good a good network around you. Thanks for coming on the show, Alex, and it was great uh, insights. I'm really excited that you were able to launch this book. Yeah, yeah, book is actually something that I had been thinking about. You're one of the few people I know that has done it. If I could do it, anybody can. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Interchain FM. As always, I will read through the pages of white papers and condense only the alpha for you in a one hour long digest. Be sure to subscribe to Chango and Chain's YouTube channel to be up to date about the latest technology and never miss a live streamed episode.